0: Do turn back to uh, Leviticus chapter 1. So you're turning there. I'm sure Leviticus, I, in fact, I know Leviticus, is one of those books in the Bible that produces quite a mix of reactions in people. I wonder what, what went through your mind when I read that passage a few moments ago. It may have been great, Leviticus. Or perhaps it was, Where's Leviticus? Not heard of that book. It sounds like some kind of disease. Or perhaps inwardly, you groaned a little bit. You remember that time when you tried to read it, when you were attempting to read through the Bible, whole Bible. And, and to be honest, that was the point in the Bible where you got a bit stuck. You got bogged down in the sacrifices and in the laws. And perhaps especially you might be a bit puzzled uh, as, a Leviticus, as a choice of a visiting preacher to, to, to preach on. might be even more that perhaps you've been reading the New Testament, and you've read the book of Hebrews and you think, well, it's a bit strange to focus our attention on Leviticus when the message of the Hebrews is don't go back. Don't drift away from Jesus and go back to the sacrifices and the temple and focus all your attention there. Well, just before I head into Leviticus 1, I just want to read a few verses from Hebrews Chapter Nine, because the New Testament itself I think call, draws us back not to to stay in Leviticus but actually underlines to us the importance of understanding and seeing and appreciating what God has already said in the Old Testament, so that we see the greatness of all that the Lord Jesus Christ is so In Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9 reminds us of everything that happened with the priests and the sacrifices in the temple and how they point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 6 and 7 of Hebrews 9, we're told about some of the sacrifices, the day Day of Atonement. And then verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews 9 says this, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. Why were there sacrifices and priests and a tabernacle under the old covenant? Well, they were vivid illustrations to teach about the work of the lord jesus christ and who were they illustrations for well they were back for those people back then but they were for us now they were for the present time they teach us now something about what the lord jesus christ has come to do just as much as they taught the people who were involved in it now you see there's more than one way not to value the lord jesus christ one would be to kind of wander away from the Lord Jesus Christ and perhaps back to Old Testament religion. But another is, is perhaps a bit more subtle and a bit perhaps a bit more tempting for us. It is to not really press in to, to appreciate and understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he's done. To miss the value of Jesus altogether. To take him for granted because we're not seeing things with the right eyes. So I've got a bit of a confession to make, it's a bit of a dangerous confession to make with my wife in the congregation, but I've never really enjoyed weddings. My attitude to weddings has always been, well, you, you've seen one and you've seen them all. Services are the same. dresses are always the same. I, as a single man I go to weddings, I go go, and my, my my wife, my, my mum rather would say, Well, what was the dress like? I would say, Well, it was white. And she'd say, It can't have been white. Of course it's white, apparently there's different shades of white, who knew? But, but my interest never really kind of extended uh, more than that. But there was a wedding I went to about six months before I got married and suddenly I was seeing everything very differently. I was, my attention was, was focused on all sorts of different aspects of the wedding. Why was that? Why was suddenly I noticing things and favours on the table, which I'm not sure I've even noticed before? Because I was right in the middle of planning a wedding. My focus was different. I was seeing things with new eyes. I was seeing the details. Maybe even kept the invite. Now, as we go back to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus is vital because in it we are told, more than any other book of the Bible, why Jesus had to come and why Jesus had to die. And as Christians... This side of the cross, actually, we've got more interest in the book of Leviticus than ever. Because we go back in it and we see, wow, all these little details. They are pointing to the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are telling us something about who he is and about his death and about his resurrection. Now, the book of of Leviticus, it begins by outlining the five basic offerings the Israelites were to bring. It's a bit like a worship manual. You, you get them kind of repeated. You get the laws uh, given uh, about them, and then the, there's kind of explanation, particularly for the priests. So they're kind of recounted twice in the first eight chapters of uh, Leviticus. Uh, this morning, I want us to look at this burnt offering in chapter one. If you come this afternoon, we'll look at the fellowship offering in chapter three. And the burnt offering is really, really important. It was the most basic offering the Israelites were to bring. It was the most regular. It was to be brought every day, morning and evening, by all the people. And so I think if we understand the burnt offering, we we get a basis of understanding for the rest. And we see something very important about the whole sacrificial system. I just want to... uh, show show us three things this morning about this burnt offering three things which are very practical for us today as we want and seek to worship uh, the lord firstly notice this the reason for worship is grace the reason for worship is grace we see that particularly in verses one and two So just look down at how the book of Leviticus opens. Leviticus is a book all about worship and sacrifice and laws. But who is it who speaks the first word? Why is Leviticus here? It is because God speaks. And you see, that is true throughout the book. Most of Leviticus is the Lord speaking to Moses, his messenger, to speak to the whole of his people. The reason these laws and sacrifices are here is because God commands them and calls the people to do them. And what we need to see is that this is a wonderful and an amazing thing. So just think about where we are in the story of the Bible up to this point. Leviticus carries straight on from the end of Exodus, where God has rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he's led them to the Mount, Mount Sinai, where they have received his law and the instructions for the temple. Now we get a whole book about what the people are to do at the tabernacle, and later the temple. It's a whole book on worship. It's a whole book on living in relationship with God. So if you're a Christian here this morning, why are you a Christian? Why have you been saved? What is the purpose for which the Lord has brought you and saved you and and forgiven your sins and and, and brought you into union with Christ? I'm sure you can give many answers to that question. You say, well, so my sins are forgiven. So we get to go to, to, to be with Christ forever. But there's a danger if we stop there. We're just missing the point, aren't we? The Israelites should have known why they were rescued from Egypt. It wasn't just because the Lord wanted to free them from oppression. That wasn't the end in itself. If you go back to to chapter 8 of Exodus, Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might worship me. Worshipping the Lord Glorifying him was the purpose of the exodus. It was the purpose of the rescue. They were saved to be set apart for the Lord as his people living in relationship with him. And so as they gathered around Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, they're described as the Lord's treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, descriptions which Peter in the New Testament or the Lord through Peter in the New Testament says it's true of us, the church. They and we, we're saved to worship the Lord. And this is wonderful grace on God's part. Perhaps you think this morning, that doesn't feel like it. Words like worship and priesthood and holiness, they sound very negative. They sound very religious to you. But just think about it. What God is doing is he's calling us, he's enabling us to be and to do what we were created to do. In Genesis, what were Adam and Eve created to do? They were created to live a life of worship in perfect relationship with God. And that was broken through their disobedience, their breaking of the covenants. And now what the Lord does, he saves a people and calls them back to, to what we're created to do. But the big question, obviously, is how do we worship God? It's a big question because, left to ourselves, we get it wrong. The Israelites certainly did. So there's that tragic moment towards the end of Exodus, isn't there? When Moses is up on the mountain, and, and down below, led by sad, tragically led by Aaron, they are attempting to worship God themselves. They, they build a calf out of gold, they have a wild party, and the interesting thing there is, is what they're not doing, is that they're not doing, t- turning to other gods. No, Aaron stands and says, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt. They're trying to think up themselves. How to worship the Lord, and they get it very wrong. Our sin twists our view of God, it twists our view of worship. We need to recognize we get them wrong. We do it regularly. You don't have to be followers of other religions to, to get worship wrong. We can easily think that actually our worship of the Lord is, is all about our goodness, it's all about us being good and right. we come to leviticus and we have our view of worship well brought back to god's view of worship in leviticus god tells his people how they should worship it's a really important principle he speaks first his people respond god's people any people then we're never left to think up or imagine what pleases him So we should never think when we come to Leviticus that Leviticus is a description of a group of people attempting to earn their way to God. No, right from the first moment, it is grace. It is God acting, it is God speaking, telling his rescued people how to follow him and enabling him to do it. He graciously stoops down and calls his people to respond to his leading. And it's striking as you move through this chapter, the Lord is always making sure that worship is accessible for all of his people. People have the option to bring as they're offering a bull or a sheep or a bird. That's why there's all the repetition. It's not because God is saying, just do your best. No, he he wants all his people, regardless of how much they they have or, or earn to worship him. It's his grace, it's his provision that has opened the way to worship him. I wonder this morning whether we take the fact that we are called by God to worship Him for granted. It is amazing. It is a privilege. It is astonishing. It's a privilege we already abuse as human beings, but what has God done in the Lord Jesus Christ? He's spoken, He calls us back, He's opened that way for us to again respond rightly to Him. So You need to remember the context for all of Leviticus and the burnt offering is grace. But then the second point is is, is Leviticus makes very clear that the barrier to true worship is sin. The barrier to true worship is sin. The grace I've just been talking about here, it's not cheap grace. It's not the kind of grace that ignores sin. In fact, it's the the kind of grace that, that heightens our awareness of sin. Grace is grace because of the greatness and how wicked our sin is. Now, as you read through the book of Leviticus, there's a conundrum that runs through the whole of the book, and it's this. This is the kind of riddle that Leviticus solves. How can a holy God be in relationship with a sinful people? How can a holy God be in relationship with a sinful people? God is holy. That truth is repeated time and time again in the book of Leviticus. Holiness simply means that difference, that God is different to us, but, it, but it's more than just different, obviously. It, 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 it's summing up who God is in his godness. He is greater, he is more awesome, he is morally pure and perfect. How can a great God, who is perfect, be and continue to be in relationship with a people who are by nature sinners and rebels? And it's now, by this point, that they've shown they are still sinners, even though they're rescued by the Lord. They're left to their own devices. They will moan and do their own thing and sin in every way. We look at them and think, well, how can they be so terrible? And then we just spend a week observing how we act and live and think and talk. They're just like us. And we're, perhaps, when we're thinking rightly, we're aware of our sin. And this morning, if you, you've ever looked at yourself and wondered, how on earth can God ever be in a relationship with me? But the Lord does not overlook that issue. He can't. And that is the point of the burnt offering. So you read the description of what went on and when the offering was given. I wonder whether you tried to imagine what it must have been like to give this offering. Striking that the priest did very little. You, an ordinary Israelite, you bought the best you could afford, a bull, a sheep or a dove. You slaughtered it, you skinned it, you washed it out, you got rid of any excrement. And importantly, as you did that, you pressed your hand down onto it, probably while the priest said a prayer. And then the whole animal or bird, it was burnt up by fire. And then you left the temple. Now, what would that have said to you as you went through that? Well, this burnt offering, it's a vivid reminder to you that this is what you deserve. The crucial part of all of this is is there in verse four. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It's a very symbolic act. It's a way of showing you identify with that ram or that sheep. It's a very pointed way of saying that when that animal is burnt up, really it's being burnt up in your place. Now it was costly. Meat was very expensive. And it was messy. But what would have been going through your mind as you left the entrance to that tent was, would have been something like this. God is holy and I'm not. Just look at how seriously God takes sin. Sin deserves death. Sin deserves punishment. Barrier to worship is sin. And as you go through Leviticus, Leviticus could not be stronger on that point. Now just before we move on, I wonder how often I wonder how often we have left church thinking that. That God is holy and I'm not. And just look at what my sins deserve. I think often these days we are quick, aren't we, to jump to the joys of Christianity. And it is right, we should be full of joy. As we, as we sung at the start, we ought to rejoice in the, the Lord. Come before the Lord with cheerful voice and we are to, to think about the benefits as we talk and, and share the gospel with others with a point uh, uh, all the glorious benefits but, but there is still a place, there should still a place still be a place for slowing us down for recognising that sin deserves death that as God said to, to Adam and Eve if you eat that uh, fruit you will surely die that we are turning our back on the author of life Whenever we turn our back on his word. That God never stops being holy. And that we are not. And we should recognise that. And tremble at that. But then that leads to the third point, And that is that the assurance of worship is atonement. I don't make that point about sin just so that we uh, spend all our time thinking how miserable we are. But the more we see how holy God is and how terrible sin is, the greater what the Lord has provided for us becomes, the the more precious the Lord Jesus Christ is. So as you walked away from that tent having given your bow to offering, you didn't only have an awareness of how serious your sin was. If that's all you felt, then you missed the whole point. In fact, the priest would have made sure that's not all you felt. So look at verses uh, three and four. If his offering's a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male uh, uh, without uh, a blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting uh, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Would have been acceptable to the Lord. It would have made atonement for the one making it. You'd have walked away thinking, as well as how serious sin is and as well as how holy God is, you would have thought, wow, how amazing that the Lord would accept that bull as a substitute for me, you would have walked away assured that you were right with God. You would have walked away knowing that your sins were forgiven. And one of the interesting things about the burnt offering was that in the camp in the wilderness and then in the temple, burnt offerings were always being made. In fact, in, in chapter six of Leviticus, we're told that one of the tasks for the priests was to make, make sure that the fire on the altar was kept burning. Kept being topped up with burnt offerings. That fire must never go out. So, in the camp, where, where you were probably wherever you were, you'd probably be able to see a plume of smoke going up from the altar. And actually, that would have been the most reassuring sight for you as an Israelite, because smoke meant that burnt offerings were being made, which meant atonement. It meant forgiveness. There's another wonderful little thing in in chapter one, which we must see. So look at the end of verse nine and then look at the end of verse 13. How how does the Lord react to these burnt offerings? Well, those offerings, we're told, uh, were a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The Lord loved the smell of those burnt offerings. Smell is really evocative, isn't it? A familiar smell, the smell of home. It's really comforting, isn't it? The smell of the the food you love. It it being cooked is just the most wonderful smell in the world when you're hungry, isn't it? And we're told as God smells, if you like, the burnt offering, he's pleased. His wrath is turned away. He is pleased with his people. And were the Israelites still sinners? Yes, they still sin. Would it have been the case that sometimes they looked at their lives and thought, Well, I'm I'm such a hypocrite? How can God love me? I'm sure, they had their moments. But what what did they do in the, in that point? When they had to just go outside their tent and look to the altar and just perhaps see the smoke rising and think, Well, no, the burnt offerings have been made. God is pleased with those offerings. And so his wrath is turned away. And what did they have to do? They had to keep trusting and obeying and bringing the sacrifices day by day. And if they did it by faith, they were accepted, not not as a kind of payment, not as a kind of earning their way to God, but as a response to God's gracious provision for them. One day, however, that fire did go out the smoke stopped rising. The smell of burning animal flesh stopped being a fragrant aroma in the nose of the Lord. Not because God had suddenly stopped providing a way, not because he'd stopped accepting substitutes, but because actually what all of that was pointing to, well, the reality came. Should have been clear to the Israelites, I think that a bull or sheep or bird could never be a proper substitute for a human life, a human being made in the image of God. But they were vivid pictures, vivid illustrations of one who was to come. And Jesus Christ, God himself, stepping down into our world, became that sacrifice So again, I quoted from Hebrews at the start of the sermon. Let me do it at the end. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 to 10. This is what the Lord says. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings. You did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I've come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ's sacrifice, Christ's death, is the ultimate burnt offering. Christ, given himself for his people, is what turns away the wrath of God on our sin. Death of Christ is, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the fragrant aroma of life in the nose of God's people. The question is, have we, have we trusted in Christ? Again, just imagine that faithful Israelite. Would he have been aware of his sin? Yes. Would he have been confident of forgiveness? Yes, because of the burnt offering. He saw it being burnt up in front of him. He could see the smoke head into the heavens to please God with its smell. And the thing is, this morning, you are in a better position than that Israelite. Don't downplay your sin, but see what Christ has done. Now, we can't see a kind of visual representation of it because unlike those burnt offerings, those burnt offerings kept having to be given, Christ died once for all, and yet what do we do? We don't don't see a cloud, and we don't smell the offerings, but we hear the message of what Christ has done. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes the Galatians and and, and says, it was as if Christ uh, was crucified in front of your very eyes. Now, they weren't there. They weren't there, and Christ uh, died. They didn't see it, but but what's he referring to? He's referring to the fact they've heard the message of the gospel, and they've trusted and believed it and that can be true for us in keswick this morning we look at our sin and we see a holy god what does god do he says look to the cross don't don't look at yourself don't trust your feelings look at the cross look at the cross of christ just one last thing as we close there's a further application of the burnt offering if Once we have done that, once we are believers and know uh, uh, that Christ has, and we trusted in what Christ has done, you see, God is not only simply pleased with the death of his Son on our behalf. Just listen to what Paul tells the Ephesians. He says to them, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. As a fragrant offering and sacrifice to, to God, then he writes to the Philippians, he says this, "I am amply supplied. Now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to the Lord." See, as we've come to Christ, we aren't saved, but we're saved to worship just as the Israelites were. And that worship, yes, it means in a very special way, coming together as God's people on God's day to, to give him praise and to listen to, to hear his word, but then also to, to worship him as living sacrifices, as Paul says in Romans, day by day, moment by moment, wherever we are, in our bodies. It's not simply enough to just think, oh, God's wrath has been turned away from us. Uh, and, uh, uh, but, but we are to, to obey him, we are to trust him. It has a, uh, in a way that flows from that. And we can do that in the confidence that actually now our obedience, well, it doesn't earn our way to God, but it is a beautiful aroma in the nostrils of the Lord. Your love for others, the way you practically share with others, the way you give financially to the Lord's work, The way you use your gifts and abilities, the way you care, the way you fight sin, all of those things, God doesn't ignore them. Now actually, rather than God standing against us in our wrath and even our good deeds being like dirty rags, now in Christ... So we're joined to Christ and everything that Christ is and Christ has done is a fragrant aroma in God's nostrils. Everything that we do in worship of him is just a wonderful smell in the nostrils of the Lord. Doesn't that give us just the greatest of motivations to keep going? God takes a deep breath as we we worship him in every uh, 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 part of our life. And and he enjoys, enjoys what we do. Just as he did when those burnt offerings went up. Now, as I said, forgiveness is foundational. If you don't know Christ this morning, without trusting Christ, actually whatever we do is tainted by sin. So actually, whatever we do is a nasty stench in the nose of God. We are sinful and God is holy. And yet in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, there's Forgiveness. And all we do as we worship him uh, is a beautiful and enjoying smell to the Lord. And don't we see as we, we come to this chapter, it seems so far away from us, actually, how, how much it shows us how great the Lord Jesus Christ is, how very practical uh, it is. I hope, it's my prayer, that we, we just recognise the wonder of Christ, because God is the same God. He's the same God who was there at the time of Leviticus as he is now. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's provided that way back. So let's rejoice in Christ and let's serve him with all our strength. Amen.